You're listening to Clouser on Business. Thanks for coming back. I'm Clouser, your host. Glad you're with us today. Well, today's topic is one that I know all business owners or executives with the sales department will want to stay tuned for. The topic and title of our podcast is, Why Are My Sales Not Increasing? I've listened to many people as they have confided in me on their salespeople's lack of performance and ponder why they do not have the sales they thought they would have when they hired that superstar or that seasoned salesperson. I'm paying the person a high salary, they say, with an aggressive commission schedule, yet I'm not seeing the results I expected. Well, I'm happy to have John Lee of Sales Acceleration with me today to help address some of the issues owners and sales department executives face each day with their team of salespeople. Welcome to the podcast, John. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and uh, how you arrived at counseling businesses on the sales development side. Hi, Clouser. Thank you for inviting me. I've been a sales VP or SVP for about 35 years, so in sales leadership. Um, for small businesses, up to about $75 million. So I've grown companies. I've been on the fastest growing list in Portland, Oregon for about 18, different, 18 years with about three different companies. So I come with a strong experience in sales and sales leadership. But my, my technical degree was in physics, so I started as Uh-oh. a laser physicist. Well, we'll hear more about that, you know, a little bit later. <laughs> I was going to, because that, that, you took my question away from me. I was going to ask you if this was what you started with uh, when you uh, came, came out of school. And so how did, how, what was the transition from physics in, into business or sales? Well, I started at a small company called General Dynamics, and I was working on Star Wars before it was called Star Wars. And I came in out of graduate school, out of the Institute of Optics, and I had another engineer with me in my team who was about 60 years old. And we started talking about salaries, and he was making about $6,000 more than me. The next year, they brought in another young buck, and he was making $1,000 less than me. And I figured, you're not going to make a whole lot of money that way if you're going to be at a company for 30 years, and they're going to hire someone else at that level. And I got the opportunity to uh, interview for a technology company making spectrometers. Hmm. I had bought one, and they were looking for a, a salesperson. And I went up and I met with uh, Jim Branch, uh, head of uh, photo research. And they were really well known in the industry, uh, particularly in the Hollywood industry, for spectrometers. And he asked me what I wanted to do in five years. And I said, well, I want Richard's job, who was the vice president. He said, well, what do you want to do in 10 years? And I said, your job? And he said, okay, what do you want to do in 20 years? And I said, king. I got my first sales job. (laughs) Good for you. So uh, any regrets uh, with that change? No, I I think it fit me really well. Having the technical background, understanding, because I've been a lot in technology, has really been a benefit. Learning how to manage people was something that took time. Mm Mm-hmm. I see. Okay. Hey, well, uh, and thanks for sharing that. So to our topic today, uh, John, with your experience in working with uh, your clients, you must have heard uh, about all the angst and disappointments that leaders of uh, sales teams have. Uh, why, why would I, if I was an executive or an owner of a company, uh, why would I hire you? I mean, what would I be looking for uh, with having you come in to help me? 
Well, most clients come to me not through the internet, not through uh, any other way, but a trusted advisor is sitting there talking to them, and they say something like, I just lost my best customer. I just lost my sales manager. Something bad just happened. And that trusted advisor will go, well, I know this guy, John Lee, and he fixes that. So I'm really brought in in one of three ways. One, something bad just happened. Sales manager, best customer, etc. The second and probably most common way I'm brought in, though, is what I call flat and gray. The cells have been flat forever, and they're turning gray and thinking, oh, my goodness, I have to sell this company someday. And they know that people don't buy flat. And the third way is what I call the shooting star. They're growing like mad. They're out of control. They know they're out of control. And they want to, to harness it and keep that company growing. And so I'm brought in. I'm usually brought in to B2B businesses, 1 to 30 million, um, that generally have a product, but it can be a service. And what they're doing is they're at a point in time of transition. They have a pain point. They know they have a pain. They don't know who to ask about how fixing that pain. You know, you don't see it in, you know, the yellow pages, you know, sales guy that fixes companies. Mm -hmm. But I'm brought in. What I do is I develop an infrastructure for them. These are small businesses that don't have CRMs, don't have the tools that a $100 million company does, mm -hmm. companies that I'm used to. So I try and take a $100 million company's infrastructure and plop it into a small business so they can grow and not just survive, but thrive. Mm -hmm. And I have an affinity, frankly, for what I would consider to be legacy companies. So family-owned businesses where dad grew it, all of a sudden son got it, isn't really sure what to do. And we lose a lot of those businesses. Mm -hmm. Three out of four end up failing if that transition doesn't happen well. Mm -hmm. So uh, back to your comment earlier, this, uh, this wasn't on my, uh, one of my questions I had prepared, but you mentioned there was three categories of uh, the flat and gray, the shooting star, there was one more. And something bad happened. Yeah. So uh, out of those three, is there one that you, you kind of like? helping with more than others, or, or do they just all three have a, di a different, distinct uh, root problem that... Well, they all have the same problems, typically. Um, they don't have an infrastructure, they don't have the right people on the bus, etc. But uh, what we're seeing now, because of what's called the silver uh, tsunami, there's a lot of people that are turning to the age of retirement. Baby boomers are retiring every second of every day. Mm -hmm. And so they're in these companies. And, you know, I, I like owners. I've been an owner. But what people have to understand is that owner is responsible for a number of families. I just finished a project with a client in January. It's got 145 families that depend on that company. And it's a legacy company. Mom died. Dad didn't want to do it anymore. Two brothers took it over that are in civil war, and it had to be fixed. Why? There's 145 families in a very, very small town. It's the biggest employer in this town. Mm -hmm. There are people in, that, in the company whose sons have gone to work there, whose grandsons are going to go to work there. We have to save those type of businesses. So from my heart, those are the ones that mean the most to me. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and follow up to that. So do you so when we're working inside a business or you're working inside of a business, do you find that the responsibility is more on management or more on the uh, actual activity that the sales team is uh, is doing? Does that question make sense? Oh yeah. Uh, the answer is yes. It's both <laughs> their faults, right? And if you remember nothing in this podcast but this, remember this. Salespeople only do two things. Only two. What you pay them for and what you measure. So from a management standpoint, if you don't set up a compensation plan to get them to do what you know they need to do to be successful, and you don't measure the metrics so that they can be successful, shame on you. From a salesperson, if you're not doing those metrics, if you don't have a comp plan that's viable, then you're not going to do it. And so they will fail. Well, uh, during the course of my career, I've found that the, the most difficult thing when uh, management or ownership wants to hire a salesperson, they said, okay, well, we're going to hire you know Joe for a base salary of something, and then we're going to put him on this commission uh, schedule based upon either something of gross profit or, you know, something of whatever, whatever that uh, measurement uh, is. And it just seems like the measuring process just becomes difficult for that company. It's really not if you set it up well. You know, I often talk to, to owners, and one of the questions I ask is, do you mind if your best salesperson makes more money than you? I'm sad to say that about 90% of the time, the owner goes, oh, hell no. They can't make more money than me. Then I go, well, instead of just paying them a base salary, what if we paid them a base salary and a commission based on profit? Do you now mind if they make more money than you? And it goes down to about 60%. No, they, they can't do that. Well, let's do it again. So they have a base salary. We're giving them a commission based on profit. We'll just take 10% of that profit and we'll give it to the sales guy. You, as a company, you get to keep 90% of the profit. Mm -hmm. Now, do you mind if they make more money than you? No, I haven't had one owner yet say, oh, no, 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 they can't make more money than me now, <laughs> you know, because they see they get 90% and the sales guy gets 10. Mm -hmm. A compensation plan has to be fair to the company and it has to be fair to the salesperson. I, every place I go in, frankly, the first thing I generally change is the comp plan. Because they're historically bad. They're very good for the salesman, or recently I saw one that would scare you, or they're very good for the company, but not both. Mm -hmm. And they can be. And when they are fair for both, and a comp plan always, if at all possible, must be based on profit. What did I just tell you? Two things salespeople do. If you base it on revenue, they'll give it away as long as right. they make their number. But if you base it on profit, they won't leave money on the table in a negotiation with that client, and your company will make more money. Right, and, and I think the uh, kicker for the uh, company should be that you know the company's going to enjoy a certain minimum gross profit maybe before the salesperson gets compensated. So it, he doesn't. I try not to make it that complicated. I do. How, um, so how do you keep how do you keep uh, that salesperson from giving away? Well, if you're doing it on, again, on margin or profit, mm -hmm. they don't want to give it away. Mm -hmm. That's the key. But number two, you know, any, in almost any business, you have a minimum uh, price or minimum profit margin. And if they need to go lower than that, then they have to have, you know, leadership approval. Mm -hmm. 
So let's start from the uh, beginning. So uh, I'm considering hiring a salesperson. Uh, you know, what should the business be considering before they even place the ad? And uh, where's the best place to look for uh, salespeople these days? Boy, would I like to talk to people about that. So one of the biggest problems I have is the wrong people on the bus. You know, recently I was talking to an owner. He said, John, I haven't had a new customer in three years. And I said, well, do you have a business development person? He goes, yeah, his name's Bob. I said, how much do you pay, Bob? About $175,000. Okay, he's controlling about $5 million in business. That's not too outlandish. I said, do you, does Bob go out and visit customers? He goes, yes, he sees customers, but only when he's seeing our existing customers. And I said, you know, I'm sorry, George, to ask you this question, but I have to. Bob's not your brother-in-law, is he? He goes, how did you know that? I said, well, you can fire your brother, but you can never fire your brother-in-law. <laughs> Getting the right people on the bus and in the right seats is critically important. I will not hire any salesperson today without doing what is called a personality profile test. So I sit down with an owner, and we look at what is really the job description of this position. We then write up a psychological profile for that position. And then when we go out and we do an ad in Craigslist or Zip, you know, or using uh, some headhunters, um, when those people come in, if they have to take the test before I'll even interview them, right? It costs $250. $250 is cheap compared to time mm -hmm. and making the wrong choice. So once they take that profile, if they match it 80% or more, then I'll interview them. Mm -hmm. And when I come to an owner bringing them a new salesperson, I usually bring two or three, all that are 80% or better, all that have gone through my interview, and then his choice is not do I hire, it's which one do you hire. Mm -hmm. If you can't find one that meets your chemistry, then we have a problem, mm -hmm. and we'll have to have a talk about that. Mm -hmm. Are you, is there any, any, anything specific that you're looking for uh, coming out of that profile? Uh, for every job, it's a little bit different. Uh, passion is one of the first things I look at in anything. If you're passionate, you're like clay, and I can mold you. If you're not passionate, you're like granite, and I don't do sculpting very well with mm -hmm. a hammer and a chisel. So that's one thing I look at. In some positions, in business development, it's different than account management, the type of personality and, and where you want to be on the continuum. Mm -hmm. But you have to be in sales a self-starter. You have to be able to take no and not let it get you down. You have to have persistence. So there's a number of things, a number of profiles. I work with Profiles International primarily, which is Frankly, it's a complete psychological profile test. Mm -hmm. We call them personalities so we don't scare the salespeople, but you know, it's very easy to identify what you want. One thing I love to do but often don't get a chance, and that is we have two or three really good salespeople. What we can do is go in and test them to set a baseline and say, I want to find people just like this. Mm -hmm. When you have that opportunity, it works really nice. Mm -hmm. what, what would be a key to you when you were, uh, say, interviewing these people that I might, and just take me for example, I might be someone that would have the tendency to uh, side or yield, yield more to the customer instead of the company that I work for? Oh, we test for that. Yeah. And it's pretty easy to find out. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. So we've assembled our sales team. Uh, what's the most effective way, John, uh, for uh, ownership to communicate and establish the uh, company goals and uh, be sure that the team understands and understands the goals and takes ownerships, ownership of them? Leadership is critical. An owner should not be leading his sales team. He should be running the company, right? And often we have a, an owner that's trying to lead the sales team. So looking at having someone that will have the one-on-ones each week, having the team meeting each week, having the tools in place, going out on ride-alongs. Training is really good and important, but if you never see them in front of the client, you have no idea if that training yeah. stuck at all. Right. I often ask um, owners, you know, how often do you go out with your with your salespeople? It's scary. It's almost never. You know, there's now when I started with sales acceleration, there were 12 advisors. We now have over 65. We're getting like five more in April. So we have a huge amount of of knowledge and best practices. And so we are collecting a lot of data from a lot of different clients. Eighty percent don't have a CRM. Really? The two out of ten that do aren't really using it very well. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to forecast. And so we want to give them tools so they can actually forecast. I'm almost religious about forecasting because if you forecast well, then your operations can operate well. Can I ask you a question on that? Because that was going to be my next question, but I don't want to go away from the, the CRM either. But uh, when you go into companies, how, uh, how often do you find that they – actually do have a forecast in place. So if they keep calling it a budget, I'm just going to scream because a lot of them do. Uh, I would say that uh, 7 out of 10 have no forecast, and the three that do are not based on anything called reality. Often I'd sit down and do what's called a a budget gap analysis. So I asked the owner, what did you do last year? We did $8 last year. What are you planning to do this year? 10 million. Okay. Out of that 8 million, how much is going to happen anyhow? Well, 7 million. How much, what, where's the new stuff? Where's your top clients? What does that add up to? 2 million. So that's 9 million. You did 8. You, you know where nine's coming from. Why did you choose 10? Well, because we want to have that kind of growth. CFOs are historically bad about this. They go, we need a 20% growth, so we're just going to pull it out of the sky. That's not a forecast. A forecast is looking at every customer and knowing are they going up, are they going down. Can I ask a question about that? Sure. So being a, John didn't mean to make that comment about CFOs if you're listening, <laughs> although it's true. Yes, uh, I did. But, you know, the reason, it, 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 the, the thing that, that I have a, a kind of a problem with is is that the the forecast always ends up in the accounting department because it doesn't seem like the sales department can put a forecast together. So what happens traditionally is accounting department knocks it up by an, a percentage or two or whatever, and then that, that becomes the forecast. So why is it that a sales department can't seem to put a forecast together? In every one of my organizations, they do, and they don't because they don't have the tools. If you don't have a CRM, Where's the data to tell you how much they did last year, the year before, the year before? Where's the data to say what projects are in one, uh, what step of the process, in what we call the funnel, right? By having stuff that's in a funnel, you put a probability to each of those steps in the funnel. And then 
Sales is a numbers game, right? We know that if you make 10 calls, you can get one appointment, and you need 10 appointments to make one sale, you got to make 100 calls. The same thing goes for a, for a forecast. We can look at what we know is going to happen historically. We can look at where are the projects in what phases and assign a probability of success to them. If you have a big enough mix of, of numbers, mm -hmm. then it actually comes out. I have been, again, it, I'm religious on forecasting, and it's unbelievable. I've hit within 1% on $20 million type companies often. That's great. Well, I believe success is 90% of forecast to 120%. A lot of owners are looking at me going, 120%, yeah, 121% of forecast is failure. Why? Because that operations function can't plan well enough ahead to be able to accommodate that. So you'll lose quality, on-time delivery, etc. Now I forecast rolling four quarters. So every quarter, my sales teams reforecast to give operations and production mm -hmm. enough view ahead to go, well, we told you we're going to do 10 million this year, and that fourth quarter was going to be three. At the end of the first quarter, you know, that now looks like it's going to be four million. Mm -hmm. So you need to ramp up. Yeah. I remember I set up dashboards for, for the executive management teams of these companies often through the CRM. And so every morning they log on, they hit a button, they get to see their dashboard. It could be, you know, what shipped yesterday, what booked yesterday, et cetera. And I'll never forget, I got a call from an owner. He said, and he's laughing, and he goes, you know, George just came running into my office. George was the CFO. And he goes, did, did you see the dashboard? And he goes, well, yeah. He goes, do you think that that project's real? And he goes, well, John said, that he set it up so the salesperson had to answer six questions to move it from a six to a seven. So it is a seven. It's got to be a seven because he wouldn't have moved it if he didn't answer those six questions. Why do you care, George? He goes, well, if that becomes an eight, it becomes an order. I have to buy another machine. It's going to take me three months to get the machine here. Yeah. I got a plan, and I have to hire some more people so we can actually produce the product. So CRMs are not just for your sales team. They're for your executive management team so that they can have visibility about what's going forward. You asked when we first started, what do I hear from owners yeah, and right. stuff? They often say, I have no idea what my sales team is doing. I have no idea you know, what's going on, you know, what, where the project is. And it's because they don't have the tools or the infrastructure like a CRM, like a funnel, that they can actually see and use the data. Data is worthless if you can't implement something about that data. Mm -hmm. uh, back to the uh, building of the forecast itself. Uh, any thoughts on how that should be done? Participation with management and the sales staff? I mean, who should be doing what and who should be... Uh, you know, no, no one but that? your sales leader and your sales team should be involved in your forecast. Period. Right? Marketing can input depending on the type of company. But in the end, your account managers and your business development people, if you have been in a CRM for two or three years, they can look at that and do their forecast in about two hours. 
It doesn't take very long once you have the tools mm -hmm. and the process in place because you're just looking at what's happened, what's going to happen, and where the new projects, the new business, where is it going to come from? Mm -hmm. So that should come from the salesperson to the sales leader. The sales leader has to ask a lot of hard questions. Now, frankly, I have salespeople that are very optimistic. So I have to discount some of their numbers. I have some salespeople that are pretty pessimistic. So I got to push them a little bit to make their numbers better. Because every one of my salespeople will know that their compensation is going to be based on the forecast and meeting the forecast. Right? Because if, mm -hmm. if they're supposed to do a million dollars, if they don't do a million dollars, they're not going to make as much money as they thought. If they do $1.2 million, they're going to make more money. So the sales leader has to make sure they're not sandbagging. Yeah. Because, again, that's going to hurt the company long term in quality, on-time delivery, and being able to do things effectively and efficiently. Mm -hmm. uh, with your experience, are, are there any uh, distinctive actions of a uh, successful, what makes a successful team versus a uh, poor performing team? Mm. Fair question. Maybe it's not a fair question. Well, it's a fair question. I, I have to go back to leadership. A, an effective team knows what their job is and what they're supposed to do. And with a leader that's holding their feet to the fire and making sure they're doing it. When you have chaos, you're not going to have success. In a lot of small businesses, the salesperson just goes and does whatever they want. And they get lucky. Even a blind pig finds an acorn once in a while, mm -hmm. right? But when you have metrics, when you have those measurement tools, recently at one of my clients, they had four inside salespeople, and I went to them and I said, how much are you on the phone? And they had had an old phone system, and we actually implemented a, a VoIP system. And they go, oh, we're on the phone all the time. And I walk in the room and it's really quiet. I'm only there one day a week, but it's pretty quiet. And so, no, we're here hours every day. And I, so I made them write down what they thought it was. And I put up on the board a, a Tuesday, which wasn't a Monday, it wasn't a Friday, and I showed them how many outbound calls they had, how many inbound calls they had, right, mm -hmm. that didn't include, and I didn't take away Husbands and wives, right? You know, but I didn't include any internal calls. The one person that had the highest amount was 43 minutes in an eight-hour day. You're not on the phone a whole lot. But you know what? A month later, it was like two and a half, three hours for everyone. It's amazing when you measure something, it gets done. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's a great example, too. So, uh... What would might be some keys to uh, help motivate a sales team? Ooh, your comp plan is number one. Management, sales leadership that has their back, right? So a good sales leader keeps the CFO from and and other people like production and equality from getting involved in the team. Engineering can be some of the worst. So being that interface or that that you know that hedge between your sales team and, and uh, other people. Being consistent. So the sales leader needs to be consistent. You know, often I see where there's a fair-haired boy in the room. You can't do that and be a good leader and really motivate the team. You know, frankly, I hate to go back to it, 
but there's only two things a salesperson does, what you pay them for and what you measure. And if you have the right comp plan, you give them the right tools, you set the right expectations and metrics, they're motivated because I hired the right psychological profile that's going to be motivated by doing those things. Mm-hmm. Well, follow-up to that is, so you're the leader. Uh, how, how do you know it's time uh, uh, to terminate a non-performer? Or, or what would you be looking for maybe to see that maybe it's not going to work out with someone? Well, in a new person, within 90 days, uh, they've either made it or they won't. And I generally know in 30. Sorry, and I, you know, it's not emotional for me. Uh, I often, one of the things that I'm brought into companies to do is to to pull the trigger on non-performers. So what I end up doing is putting a magnifying glass, i.e. metrics, meeting with them, working with them, going to clients with them, put a magnifying glass on them, and it's amazing how uncomfortable that is for a low performer. Recently I had a, a client right by where we are almost, just up the street, and they had five outside salespeople. Their number one salesperson Every time she came into the lab, just caused chaos. Her paperwork was wrong. She just was terrible to, to the technicians and everyone else. Her customers loved her. She was the number one performer. And the owner's going, she's, she's horrific in, in-house, but she's making the most money. She'd make for the company. What do I do? I said, well, we'll take care of it. I put the magnifying glass on it. We implemented a CRM. We started working together. And amazingly, she decided to go to work for one of their biggest clients. So now we had an influencer in the biggest client, and we took a customer service person who had very limited sales and put her into that same territory. But she had passion, she had knowledge, and she cared. This biggest territory grew in the first three months by 30%. Wow. She got more done. She didn't have the mistakes. (laughs) And when she came into the lab, they weren't scared of her. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, So let's go back full circle now. So uh, I've invited you to come into my company to help me for whatever reason. So you come in. What what are your eyes on uh, uh, when you go into a a new client's business? Explain to our audience, uh, you know, how you and your team – you know, might approach um, coming into my business. Sure. So when I'm brought in, we know that there's a problem. And the owner has finally admitted to himself that he has a problem and he needs help. I'm not Jerry Maguire, right? I mean, I can only help someone that's willing to let me help him. And part of my meeting, particularly the first meeting, I know there's a problem. I know somewhat about the, the problem. I've done research on the company. I've looked at their Google Analytics. And in fact, one of the highest honors I ever had or, you know, was an owner when I left that first meeting. She looked at me and she goes, you know more about my company than I know about my company. And I started it. But you know, having done my research, when I'm sitting down, more than anything else, I'm looking at, frankly, do I want to help this person? Right? Generally, I always can help this person unless it spiraled so badly that they just don't have the money to do it. But do I want to help this person, and will they let me help them? 
I ask a lot of questions. Sales today isn't like sales of our father, mm-hmm. right? We're not doing features and benefits anymore. Yeah. I also train integrity uh, sales training. And we ask questions. We look for what is the need, not what is the want. And then we try and find, do I have the right solution for them? So when I start asking questions like, do you have a CRM? Do you have a variable comp plan? I mean, I don't have to go very far down this list, (laughs) right, to understand what the problem is. What's your turnover rate? How long have your people been here? Those are the questions. But more important for me is, does this owner, are they passionate about their business? Why are they passionate about their business? Do they, are they really going to let me help? I do really three things. So one, I do an assessment where I can come in and really do a deep dive. I do that for private equity firms and I do it for owners to really look at where are the weaknesses in this company. I then can go in and most generally I'm an outsourced VP of sales. So I'm in the client's uh, business one day a week for up to a year. And it's called fractional or an outsourced VP of sales model. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in that case, I'm in control. The sales team and often the marketing team are mine. They're no longer the owners. Answers come from me in emergencies if I'm not on site. Yes, the owner has to jump in, but he better call me and tell me what he just did. They're mine. I own them. I get to do what needs to be done. That means firing the the people that shouldn't be there, hiring the people that should be there, setting the budgets, setting up the forecast, putting in the tools, developing a unique value proposition, developing an ideal client scenario, right? I do all that, train the salespeople, and then I hire my replacement, usually train them for a month to three months, then I hand them the keys to the car and let them drive it home, Mm -hmm. right, and grow that business. Because at that point, it's kind of boring to me, frankly. The other thing I do is if they have a sales leader but not as competent as we'd like them to be, I'll come in with a Genesis program where I'll come in and help them build out all those tools, but the team will report to that sales leader, and I'll mentor and coach that sales leader. That takes anywhere from three months to nine months, depending on the sales leader. To build out the tools takes about three months, and then getting them the people trained and on board and helping that, that leader you know, learn how to lead. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those are really kind of fun because I often get uh, a young person that just got dropped into to the spot. Often we're the best salesperson, which is not your best sales leader, often, mostly. <laughs> um, and so those can be a lot of fun. That's cool. Uh, so we're running out of time here. So uh, in, in summary, John, what would be three important ideas or suggestions you would leave for our listeners on building a uh, productive sales team? Three. Doesn't have to be three. A couple will do. Hire the right salespeople and make sure that they meet the profile of what you want. Develop a comp plan that's fair for the company and for the the salesperson. Remember the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. It doesn't have to be complicated. It can be very, very basic, but try and do it on margin. Number three, actually use a CRM. Don't just buy one and let it sit there. 
Okay, that's good advice. Hey, well, we're out of time for today. I really appreciate John Lee of Sales Acceleration being with us today. I can really tell you're passionate about what you do, and uh, I I bet your fulfillment comes uh, with uh, getting that company or owner to where they want to be and and their sales team. But uh, great insights and discussions on building a sales team and establishing disciplines to make a team successful. You can learn more about John on our website at clouseronbusiness.com and at John's uh, site, uh, salesacceleration.com forward slash John Lee. Hey, well, please tell your friends about us. We're on iTunes, TuneIn, Podbean, CastBox, and always at clouseronbusiness.com. Well, all for now, you've been listening to Clouser on